Well, amen. Our teenagers will be going down to their competition here this coming weekend, and uh, I would imagine they'll be doing that one. But, uh, boy, I certainly appreciate the song. What a tremendous message, and great job on that. Judges chapter 16. Judges chapter 16 tonight. <clears throat> we're going to begin reading in verse 4. We're going to read through verse 21. And then we're going to kick off a series tonight. It's called Back to God, okay? And back to God. And so we're going to kind of kick that off. Again, I thought and considered about doing this particular message in the morning and then continuing with the, the evening service with it and then just Sunday nights from then on. But <clears throat> some other things came up. So here we are. Back to God series tonight, kicking it off. Chapter 16, the book of Judges. We're going to begin in verse 4. Judges chapter 4. And uh, let's see here. <clears throat> One of our young men writes uh, jokes around here, and so I'm going to give it to you. It's a pretty good one, I think. Now, it took a couple of the singles a while to figure it out, <clears throat> but it goes like this. Why are misers so much like bakers? Because they both love their dough. <laughs> That's a pretty good joke, isn't it? It's got a future. It's got a real future. I don't write jokes these days. I've given that up. I wrote one joke when I was a kid. It was, um, <clears throat> how far is far further? That was my joke. I remember it from this day. It was years ago. I was probably about one and a half when I wrote that. But anyway, <clears throat> no, I don't remember when I did, but that was the best I came up with. So, uh, Brother Caleb, you did a good job on that. Way to go. Keep up the good work. But I, I like that joke. That was good. All right, he gave me a few others, but that's one he wrote, and I like that one. All right, Judges chapter 16, verse 4 through 21. Let's begin reading there. It says, And it came to pass afterward that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up unto her, and said unto her, Entice him, and see wherein this, his great strength lieth, and by what means we may prevail against him, that we may bind him to afflict him, and we will give thee, every one of us, eleven hundred pieces of silver. And Delilah said to Samson, Tell me, I pray thee, wherein thy great strength lieth, and wherein thou mightest be bound to afflict thee. And Samson said unto her, If they bind me with seven green wisps that were never dried, then shall I be weak and be as another man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven green wisps, which had not been dried, and she bound him with them, now there were men lying in wait, abiding with her in the chamber. And she said unto him, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he broke the wisp as the thread of a toe is broken when it touches the fire. So his strength was not known. And Delilah said unto Samson, Behold, thou hast mocked me, told me lies. Now tell me, I pray thee, wherewith thou mightest be bound. And he said unto her, if they bind me fast with new ropes that never were occupied, then shall I be weak and be as another man. Delilah therefore took new ropes and bound him therewith, and said unto him, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And there were liars in wait abiding in the chamber, and he brake them from off his arms like a thread. And Delilah said unto Samson, Hitherto thou hast mocked me and told me lies. Tell me wherewith thou mightest be bound. And he said unto her, If thou weavest the seven locks of my head with the web, she fastened it with the pin and said unto him, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. 
And he awaked out of his sleep and went away with the pin of the beam and with the web. She said unto him, How canst thou say I love thee when thine heart is not with me? Wow, that's an interesting statement, isn't it? Thou hast mocked me these three times and hast not told me wherein thy great strength lieth. And it came to pass when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him so that his soul was vexed unto death, that he told her all his heart and said unto her, There hath not come a razor upon mine head, for I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. <clears throat> and, I be sh- and if I be shaven, then my strength will go from me and I shall become weak and be like any other man." He took the Nazarite vow. That's what he's really referring to. He's been a Nazarite where he's taken that vow. And as a result, he would not shave his head. And so, verse 18, And when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up this once, for he has shewed me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up unto her and brought money in their hand. And she made him sleep upon her knees, and she called for a man, and she caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head, and she began to afflict him, and his strength went from him, and she said, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself. And he wist not that the Lord was departed from him. But the Philistines took him and put out his eyes. And brought him down to Gaza and bound him with fetters of brass. And he did grind in the prison house. <clears throat> Howbeit, the hair of his head began to grow again after he was shaven. Here in the particular passage we're reading, we <clears throat> are probably all too familiar with it. If you come back on Sunday nights or Wednesday nights in church, you've probably heard a message on Samson and Delilah. You've obviously probably been told about the story as a child even in Sunday school, but we learned that, of course, Delilah continues to chide him and continue to, to, to just, like a continual drip, stay on him and stay on him and stay on him until finally this fool of a man at this point in his life. He is no longer a strong man of character. He's a weak man of character. He may have muscles that are this big. This big. <clears throat> But he himself has not had the character to say no to his flesh. He doesn't have the strength to say no to his appetites and to his desires. And he falls prey to this woman who had nothing really, cared nothing of him other than to make some money. So now we find Samson in a mess. And the passage I think that stands out in my mind as we move along in the chapter is verse 21. Excuse me, uh... Verse uh, 20, I mean, when she says, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as be- at other times before and shake myself. And here it is now. And he wist not that the Lord was departed from him. What a sad statement. He didn't even know that he no longer had the power of God in his life. He didn't even have a clue that God had departed from him in that regard. 
He thought it would be just like every other time. I'm going to get up and sing a solo just like I always have. I'm going to get up and preach a message just like I've always had. I'm going to go ahead and teach a Sunday school lesson like I've always taught a Sunday school lesson. I'm going to be a bus captain and go out there and do a bus program just like I've always done a bus program. I'm going to work in the nursery just like I've always worked in the nursery. I'm going to clean the church just like I've always cleaned the church. I'm going to sing in the choir like I've always sang in the choir. And we never thought for a moment that God had descended or should I say departed from him. Didn't even know it. And so many times I'm fearful and I'm concerned today that in the modern church age, in the time in which we live, in the church in which we live, may I say it's so tempting, it's so easy, it's so convenient to simply do what we do without God and without His power. And just like Samson found himself in a position where he himself was without God and without power, and yet he thought, just like always, he'll go out and do what he does. I'm fearful that we fall prey to that same problem. It wasn't until reality slapped him in the face and the Philistines overcame him that he realized something was desperately wrong here. Something was wrong. Something was amiss. It was after he lost his power and not until he was in desperate need that he finally said, Wow, God's not here. He wished not that the Lord was departed from him. The Lord had departed from Samson. Why? Because he had neglected God, basically. He had taken the Lord for granted. He had chosen to follow his own path and do his own thing, and yet he still wanted the reward of obedience. He still wanted the blessings of God in his life, and he wanted the power of God in his life. He wanted the peace of God in his life. He wanted the provision of God in his life. But he didn't want God. That's a pretty sad place to be, isn't it? And that's where he was. Someone says, well, he's the strong man of the Bible. Well, he's laying with a harlot just a few verses before this. We find him with Delilah here. It's a problem, isn't it? I mean, let me ask you something. If, if you were in that position, would you be considered a holy man? Would you be considered a godly man? Would you be considered someone who you believe God owes you some kind of blessing? When you're cheating, possibly on a wife, or you're, you're in some kind of immoral transgression? I mean, where are we at today? He might be called Samson, but he was still a man, and he was held to the same standard as every other man. He had totally disregarded God and His Word, and he went off and did his own thing. And as a result of that, he lost the power of God and the presence of God in his life. And may I say today, in the house of God, and in the church, in the, the, the world in which we live, as believers, we must ensure that we are walking in obedience to God, or we will lose His presence, and we will lose His power as well. Someone says, well, I'm saved, so I always have that. You'll have the Holy Spirit living in you, but you'll have no power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And you might as well not have God there then, if that's the case, because about the only thing you're going to bring from God is the hand of chastening. If you're truly His child. Now, if you're not experiencing any chastening, then maybe you ought to check whether or not you're really His kid. The Lord had departed from Samson. Captain John Smith. He led a group of 120 men to the New World. During the course of their 20-week voyage, 16 died. And out of the group, only 53 of them lived through the first winter. It was weather, starvation, and disease, which basically was the major culprit of their demise. 
And from this humble group and others would spring forth a nation. The nation we now live in. There were three major reasons why men and women came to America. They came, obviously, to escape religious persecution. Some came to establish religious utopias. Godly or perfect societies, at least in their own eyes. As a matter of fact, these first believers that came, these, these that or at least came from the Church of England that, that ultimately settled in America, they were really guilty of the very things that they left England for. They eventually created these societies or these, these cities or, if you will, towns where you had to believe the way they believed. You had to give to who the church they said you had to give to. They basically became exactly what they despised so much in England. These abuses ultimately inspired many to insist on reform. And early in our nation, as we were seeing the Constitution put together and the Bill of Rights and so forth, there was a religious clause placed in the Constitution to ensure that there would be freedom of religion. That we'd be able to worship God according to our conscience. And the government could not tell us who and what and when and where to worship. It was always about keeping government out of the church. It was never about keeping the church out of the government. And then there were those that just simply came for mere profit. People left the, the old world, if you will, and came to this new world that now, as we would now call it the United States, for profit. They wanted to get rich. Early on in our nation's history, if you do any research, you'd find that most of the schools, that, uh, that most of the schooling was done at home early on. Uh, they didn't have public school systems like we understand them today or have today. It was all done at home. And they used basically just the old Bible as its primary textbook. The Word of God, that's basically what it was. As a matter of fact, the early readers, if you will, or those, those little textbooks that you can often find that for, for early on and, and, and like the, uh, you know, during the colonies and stuff, those kind of booklets were basically just Bible storybooks. They, they, they taught truths. They taught biblical truths. Folks were taught to read, not because really there was a goal to help them be so fluid in uh, English that they could ultimately become very rich and prosperous in our nation. They were taught to read, read so that they could ultimately read the Bible. That was the real pri priority. Even our colleges and our universities were established to train and to prepare ministers for the work of God. I mean... This purpose is stated in the charters of such schools as Harvard, William and Mary, Yale, Princeton, Brown, Columbia, Dartmouth, and even Rutgers. They were begun basically as Bible training schools to prepare preachers to reach the world with the gospel. That's how our country began. But to see, in the mid-1700s, the law saw a tremendous decline in religious fervor. Science, prosperity, humanism, and immorality became kind of the norm around. It became more prevalent in the culture that existed in those days. Brothels were springing up in some of the larger cities. Church attendance was down and declining continually. Children were being born to couples who hadn't even been married nine months. Then came the Great Awakening. This was an evangelistic movement that preached old-fashioned fire and damnation. They didn't mess around. Got up there and leather-lunged preachers just preached the Word of God and preached about hell and preached about the need for Christ. 
It emphasized the need for repentance and the return to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there were scores and scores and scores of people saved. Lives were transformed, changed. The result of that movement was that it changed the face of America completely. Great men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, they spearheaded this revival. And boy, I mean an awakening sprung forth in America that changed everything. People got back to God. Our nation got back to God. This movement was felt all the way into the 1800s as others continued to inspire people through this awakening and to direct, uh, to totally and completely direct people to the, to the Lord and to continue to focus on the purpose of being right with God. I mean, it was just an amazing awakening that took place. Some of that uh, influence of that great awakening was, is, is, is recognized through the statements of the founding fathers. We think of men like George Washington, who said, and he is considered the father of our nation. I know they're trying to change that now. <clears throat> but he says it is, by the way, this is why they're trying to change it, what I'm going to read to you next. That's why they're trying to change that, by the way. It is impossible to rightly govern the world without God in the Bible. That's really the real culprit, why we're trying to get rid of some of these founding fathers. Or trying to remove monuments that once existed. Go ahead, we can call it because it was because they were slave owners or they were this. Well, I'm going to tell you why. It's because they believed in the Word of God and it's on the monuments. That's the real problem. The devil's just going through the back door and trying to get rid of the Word of God. <clears throat> in his farewell address on September the 19th, 19, excuse me, 19, no, 1796. George Washington said, Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in the exclusive exclusion of religious principles. Now, let me read that again. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in the exclusion of religious principles. Isn't that good? That's an amazing statement. John Adams, he said, The safety and prosperity of nations ultimately depends, and essentially depend, on the protection and blessing of Almighty God. Someone says, well, weren't some of these men deists? Oh, there were a few that were. Yeah, there were some, yeah. But they had a regard for God that we don't even have today. William Penn said, Men must be governed by God, or they will be ruled by tyrants. These great men, along with so many others, they shaped our nation. And you know what they, else they shaped? They shaped our future. At the very foundation of their being was a very basic belief that God created all things. They believed that Jesus Christ was God in flesh and that the Savior, He was the Savior of the world, the majority of them. Almost all of them. They were convinced that a nation without God and the Bible was headed for ruin. And you know what? I agree. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God. You know what? We could say, In the beginning of our nation, God. In the beginning of our lives, God. In the beginning of our marriages, God. The fact is, is that God must be at the beginning of every aspect, every relationship, and everything in our lives. 
Unfortunately, many like Samson have gotten away from God. And you know what? Now it's time to get back to God. I mean, back to God as a nation. Back to God as, as individuals. Back to God as families. Back to God as a society. We need to get back to God. And you know, we can point to all the ills in our culture and our society, and we can somehow blame people or institutions or whatever we want, but the fact is, is that one thing we can blame is that we as a nation have re- removed ourselves from God. We have distanced ourselves from the, the Holy One of Heaven. We've told ourselves, we don't need God. We don't want God. And as a result, we're getting what we asked for. And so I want to share just a few reasons why we ought to be desperate to get back to God. Why we so desperately need to get back to God. So let's have a quick word of prayer and I'll give you maybe one or two of those. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, you'd help us again. We need you. We love you. And we thank you, Father, for our heritage as Americans. But, Lord, we especially thank you for our heritage as believers. And Lord, help us, Father, to stand for you in the world in which we live. Uh, the, world, the world may be guilty of uh, neglecting you and uh, even trying to totally and completely get rid of you. <laughs> but Lord, may that not be the case with us. Father, help us to start this thing by getting back to you as individuals, as a church, as families. Lord, may it catch into our community and then ultimately into our city, and our county, our state, and our country, and around the world. We need you, Lord. Help us to get back to you if indeed we need to. Well, thank you. In Christ's name, amen. So why must we get back to God? Well, <clears throat> a lot of reasons, but let me just give you a couple of things. First of all, we must get back to God because of our country. And again, we've touched on the country a little bit. But we need to get back to God because of our country. The nation in which we live. I mean, why do nations decline and fall? History has proven time and time again, over and over again, that a nation's moral condition and its particular character are key to its endurance. And sadly enough, it seems that throughout history, nation after nation after nation has Risen and fallen. God's moral laws apply to nations, not just individuals. The Apostle Paul wrote, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. I mean, just like in a person's life, that you might as well just mark it down. What you sow, you're going to reap. The same is true as a nation. Individuals and nations are going to sow, those nations and individuals that sow immorality, that sow violence, that sow oppression, well, they're not going to endure very long. Historian Arnold Toynbee, he lived in 1889 to 1975, he wrote a classic analysis on the rise and fall of civilizations. In his 12-volume work, A Study of History, he examined 21 great civilizations. Of all of these, The only one that survives intact of the present is the United States of America. Now, if you you would poll Americans about whether or not they could envision the fall of their nation, most would probably kind of say, no, that's impossible. It's not going to happen. I doubt it very highly. 
Now, at least 10 years ago, that would have been the case. I think there's more people today that say we possibly could. But 10 years ago, for sure, people would have said, nah, I don't think so. I mean, not fall completely, not like the Roman Empire, not like some of the other empires, the Persian and and some of those others throughout the history. No, that's not going to happen. But you know what? Citizens of almost every single great empire in the past, like most Americans, would say, no, we're going to be around a long time. You know, in the waning days of the Roman Empire, when it was coming to an end in A.D. 476, the Romans themselves felt that their status and their nation was secure and solid. Arthur Bryan Ward Perkins, he wrote this, he said, quote, Romans before the fall were as certain as we are today that their world would continue forever substantially unchanged. So why did they fall then? A man by the name of Jim Nelson Black, author of, quote, when, uh, author of When Nations Die, he wrote this. He said, over time the empire talking about Rome, would steadily decline. Its corruption and lack of ethics escalating to plague levels. Honesty and nobility of character disappeared. Sexual immorality became rampant. And speaking out against excess or corruption was called treason. To squelch all evidence of resistance in their policies, Roman emperors from Nero on used the army and their personal guard as a sort of thought police to ferret out dissent and punish opponents. Well, that sounds kind of scary. In his research concerning decadence in modern society, The author Black, again, that we spoke of earlier, he listed some signs of decay. Here are some of the signs of decay. He said, you want to know if our nation's decaying? You want to know if we're, unfortunately, heading in that direction? He said, okay, let me give you a few. Luxury. Skepticism. Weariness. Superstition. A preoccupation with self. Promotion of the wrong people. The urge to overspend and a rise of liberal opinion, that is the popularization of attitudes and policies controlled by sentiment rather than sound moral judgment. I mean, listen to this. Are you kidding me? We're talking about experts on the Roman Empire that have dug into everything they can read and they're coming away saying, now listen, you want to find out what are some of the symptoms, if you will? Or signs of decay in a culture? Those things that point to a nation that is on the decline instead of on the rise? Luxury, skepticism, weariness, superstition, a preoccupation with self, promotion of the wrong people, the urge to overspend and a rise of liberal opinion. Wow. I think we're there. Psalm chapter 9 verse 17 says, The wicked shall be turned into hell and those nations that forget God. Every single nation that has neglected or rejected the God of creation has been ruined. It's been wrecked. It's gone by the wayside. And America, is, you know, as we've already mentioned, we began very strong in a religious sense, a very, very strong moral base. The very greatness of our nation, the very foundation of our nation, was born out of a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the exercising of His laws and His priorities and His principles. 
I mean, that is what our nation was built upon. I don't care what a politician says. It doesn't matter what even some modern historians are trying to twist and turn history to say. The fact is, is that our nation was built on this book, the Word of God. <clears throat> French writer Alex de Tocqueville, de Tocqueville I tried to do some research on this. I've heard some people try to say that he didn't say some of these things. So I've been trying to, I try to be as accurate as I can possibly be, but I'm still struggling to find anything that would say it didn't happen. He wrote a book in 1831, and there were some key statements in that book. One of the things he said was, I sought for the key to the greatness and genius of America in her harbors. He goes on to say, in her fertile fields and balanced forests, in her rich mines and vast world commerce, in her public school system and institutions of learning, I sought for it in her domestic, uh, excuse me, democratic Congress and in her matchless constitution. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. The prophet Nehemiah, he addresses an abuse of his own people in the writings over here in the book of Nehemiah chapter 9. Turn there if you would, please. He speaks of Israel in the promised land. He talks about their plight, their, their, their journey, if you will. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 25 through 28. We need to get back to God for our country. If we want our country to be the country that it was for us, if we want our country to be the same country it will be for our grandchildren, my friend, we better get back to God. It's a very pie-in-the-sky attitude to think somehow that we're going to continue at the rate we're going and the direction we're going. I'm going to tell you something. You believe whatever you want, but I promise you, if certain people would have got into the White House this last election, your, liberty, your religious freedoms would have been taken away from you. Don't think for, and listen, the judges that are going to be appointed to the Supreme Court would have been so liberal, we'd have never had an opportunity to get, regain what we'd lose. And you say, well, that's being political. No, that's being moral. People that believe that book, people that believe certain things are wrong and certain things are right, are the kind of people that you want on that, that court. I don't know about you, but I'd like to, every Supreme Court justice to believe that, that sodomy is a sin against God. I wish every one of them believed it. I wish every one of them believed it. Because that's what the Bible teaches. Now listen, I'm not mad at anybody that's a sodomite. I'm not mad at them. Matter of fact, I have great compassion for them. I'm, I, I hurt for them because honestly, they are miserable people. Confused people. But let me tell you something. Our nation is not stronger because we embrace that sin of homosexuality, we call it, or lesbianism or transgenderism. That is not making us stronger. It's making us weaker because we are neglecting God and His Word. We're not following after God. We are moving away from God and His Word and His truth. And as a result, we better get back to God or we're done as a nation. And someone says, well, that's just, you're sensationalizing things. Just look at your nation. What, what, we got people walking into school shooting up people and killing people today. Fifty years ago, that was unheard of. Seventy-five years ago, you wouldn't have thought about it. Now it's, it's becoming more complex. Now it is certainly blown out of proportion. I read somewhere the other day that out of the 18 school shootings supposedly took place, only three of them actually were shot in school while kids were on school ground and properties. I'm telling you, we're sensationalizing things because we want to try to politicize it. 
But I'm going to tell you what, that's what we're dealing with. We no longer care about facts anymore. What did he say about the Roman Empire? They got to where they were functioning and acting on feeling instead of truth. And listen, there is no truth outside of this book, my friend. This is the truth. Let's throw this truth aside and we don't have anything to stand on. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? He said, well, you've got to be tolerant of people. No, they don't want tolerance. They want total acceptance of. Don't, don't buy into the lies. No, they are radical in their agenda. Our nation is at risk. Notice Nehemiah chapter 9, though. And they took strong cities and a fat land and possessed houses full of all goods, wells digged, vineyards and olive yards and fruit trees in abundance. So they did eat and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in the great goodness. Talking about the children of Israel as they go into the promised land. God had did that for them. He did that for them. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against thee and cast thy law behind their backs. Boy, what a picture, huh? Cast his law behind their backs. I mean, here they are. Oh, we got it here. We don't need that. Let's move on without it. That's what we're seeing in the passage. Cast it behind them. Got rid of it. Just threw it off behind them. If it's not in front of you, you can't read it. And if you don't read it, you're not going to apply it. They disregarded God and His Word. That's basically all he's saying, simply put. So anyway, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against thee, cast thy law behind their backs, and slew thy prophets, which testified against them to turn them to thee. Isn't that amazing? Now they're killing the very ones that are saying, you need to get back to that Bible. You need to quit dismissing God and His Word. You need to get right with God. You need to get back to God. And they said, kill them. We don't need to hear that mess. I've got two dogs that live around my neighborhood, not too far from my house. Man, I mean to tell you, you can, on a clock, you can literally look at your clock and you know, oh, in the next five minutes, that dog will be out barking for the next 20. Oh, oh there comes the next one. He's going to start here about the time that one goes in. I mean, it is like clockwork, clockwork, clockwork. And you sit there and you think... Why do you let your dog just bark and bark and bark and bark and bark? You know, that's how, that is exactly how these Israelites felt toward those prophets. They kept saying, repent, repent, get right with God, get right with God. And they thought, shut up. We told you once, we told you twice, we told you a thousand times, shut up! And they finally got so sick of them, they just decided to kill them. Sadly enough, the reality is, is down the road, far enough, who knows, that may become our plight. Wouldn't be the first time Christians had to pay with their lives to believe what they believe. Hopefully it doesn't come in my lifetime or yours. I hope none of you have to experience that. I pray to God you don't have to. But boy, things are quickly changing. Either way, we have heaven to look forward to. May God help us to be eternally minded. Notice what he says here now. Therefore thou deliverest them into the hand of their enemies who vex them 
And in the time of their trouble. This is amazing, isn't it? Watch this. Thou deliverest them. Excuse me. When they, excuse me, I, I just read the wrong spot. Therefore, which tested the sea, um, nevertheless, they were disobedient. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. I'm, I'm, I don't have my verses written out on this one. I got it all together as one big piece. That was a bad mistake. Therefore, thou deliverest them into the hand of their enemies, who vexed them, and in time of trouble, when they cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of liking that. I don't get that necessarily, but I do love it because I know that in my own life, truth be known, I acted just like they have. Thou heardest them from heaven, and according to thy manifold mercies, we talked about mercies, remember? Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We look back throughout the book, the first 11 chapters of Romans, as Paul described the mercies of God, and then he says, Now, now, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Well, I'll tell you what, that's good stuff, isn't it? Nonetheless, we see, but after they had rest, they did evil again before thee. Therefore, leftest thou them in the land of their enemies, so that they had the dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven. And many times didst thou deliver them according to thy mercies. And that's something. I guess what I'm saying is this. The people of God would turn their back on him. They'd cast the word of God behind them. God would see in their rebellion and disobedience that they were on a road leading nowhere. And in his great mercy and love for them, he would turn around and allow them to fall into the hands of the enemy so that they would be turned back to him. See, he did them a favor. Now, I know we wouldn't consider that a favor if we're living in that day and age, but God permitted nations to come along and put them into bondage and enslavement and and to have to serve those nations And to be occupied by those nations to ultimately turn them back to God. And when they would turn back to God, he in turn would receive them. We must get back to God as a nation if we desire the preeminence, prosperity, and protection afforded by our Lord. Otherwise, we have only ruin to look forward to. Abraham Lincoln, he made this statement. He said, It is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God. To confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon. And of course, Brother Steve read this earlier from the pulpit in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. George Washington Carver lived back in 1864 to the 1943. He was an agricultural chemist of international fame. He revolutionized the economy of the South by introducing hundreds of of uses for the peanut. Soybean, the the pecan, sweet potatoes in the the place of cotton. He, He revolutionized. Carver named his laboratory, quote, God's little workshop, unquote. 
I don't know that we can wrap our minds around the greatness of this man and what he accomplished. But he said he called his laboratory God's Little Workshop, and he never took any scientific books into it. He merely asked God how to perform his experience, his ex- experiments. Speaking to a woman, woman's group in 1924, he declared before the 500 assembled, he said, God is going to reveal to us things he never revealed before if we put our hands in his. No books ever go into my laboratory. The thing that I am to do and the way of doing it are revealed to me the moment I am inspired to create something new. Without God to draw aside the curtain, I would be helpless. Changed our nation. In 1939, when awarded the Roosevelt Medal, Carver said, The secret of my success is simple. It is found in the Bible. Quote, In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. And that's something. What's happened with men and women of of, of our nation. Why, why is it that we're, we're so afraid to mention God today? Kill our political positioning, to destroy our opportunities for prosperity and for promotion. We'll no longer be able to be the head of a CEO, uh, the, uh, CEO in charge of a company if we take a strong stand for God and His Word anymore. So afraid. Joseph Emerson Brown He lived back in 1821 to 1894. He was a U.S. Senator and Governor of Georgia for four terms. Replying to a letter inquiring as to his beliefs, he stated, I have to state with pleasure that I believe the Holy Bible is the inspired Word of God and contains the only true rule of faith and practice. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Sovereign of the universe, and the Savior of all who believe in Him. Would you like to have some Senators stand up and say that publicly? I'm going to tell you something. It's time our nation gets back to God. The thing that made our nation great was that we had men and women that stood up and said those kind of things and didn't just say them in order to find themselves in a political office. They said them because they meant them from their heart. They genuinely did believe in the God and in His Word and applied His truth to their lives. And may I say, in your life, in your home, your marriage, your family, in your schools, and in your church, and in your nation, if we don't get back to God, we're in a mess. We have nothing to look forward to that's good. In order to get back to God, you, by definition, must have been with Him, though, at some point. If you've never trusted Christ or received the Lord, then you need to get into His presence. You need to receive and accept Him as Savior and Lord. But if you've been with Him at any point, if you trusted Him as your Savior and Lord, then it's time to get back to God. You know, no church gets back to God as a whole. We all, a church begins getting back to God by every piece and part of the church getting right with Him. And it won't be a nation that falls on their knees necessarily all at once. It'll start somewhere and it has to grow. And may I say that, yes, I, I believe still to this day, I am still of the, 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 the persuasion that God could, in His power, have a revival in America that could change America. Someone says, well, if Jesus returns, we don't see America in, in any kind of prophecy, in, in revelation, so there's no way that could happen now. My friend, you don't know when the rapture will take place. You have no idea if it's 100 years, 200 years away from now. We don't know that for 
sure. Nobody knows that time. The fact is, is that we believe we serve a God today that's big enough and bigger than any problem that we face. And I'm going to tell you something. There's no politician. There is no government entity. There is no, no person in this America that can hold God back. If we, God's people, get right, I'm believing without a doubt that God can do something great in America still. I believe that. I believe he can still do something great. It starts in a place, though. It starts in a, with a person's life. It's not necessarily going to be the whole Senate falling on their knees at one time. But my friend, one soul at a time, one family at a time, one community at a time, one country, county at a time, one state at a time. I don't know, but God can do it if we'll just get back to him. It's time we get back to God. The thief cometh not before to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life that they might have it more abundantly. The abundant life is one that includes Christ. I wonder, will you get back to God? Will I get back to God? Because if we don't, who will? Father, we come to you. We thank you again, Lord, just for the, the simple thoughts that we've considered this, mor- this evening and